0: Psych Podcast. Uh, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. We're so excited to have Dr. McClure back um, and continue a little bit of the conversation from last time. And then he's going to you know, catch us up on some other things going on. So we're really, uh, really excited. But I'm going to turn it over to Rebecca. Rebecca is going to tell everybody how to participate tonight. Rebecca.
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Brian McClure back tonight as well. But before we begin, I would like to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor, MedTravelers. As a school psychologist, having a strong support system in your career is instrumental in finding placements and opportunities that fit your goals. That's why we are proud to partner with MedTravelers, the industry leader for staffing school psychologists in districts nationwide, offering the advantage of W-2 employment status along with full health insurance coverage and 401k retirement options. MedTravelers is a true advocate for your career success. To learn more about MedTravelers and to discover the ways they can help you succeed in your school's psychology career, visit Med. Travelers.com forward slash school site. And now, welcome to School Psych Podcast. If you are watching us live, we would love for you to participate, but just by just logging into your YouTube account and commenting alongside the video. If you'd like to send a message um, not in real time, after after if you're watching not live, please feel free to message us on either of the Facebook pages, School Psyched, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page. You can also um, tweet on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast or tweet to at podcast site. You'll see the commentary about our podcast uh, already there. And we'd love to hear from you either now this evening or down the road, whenever you have a chance to catch up and tune into this episode. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric.
2: Thanks, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. My name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist also in the state of Connecticut. And I'm excited to have Dr. Byron McClure with us this evening. We had Dr. McClure on uh, last year, and we had a fantastic talk about his lessons for SEL, about his work um, in the DC public schools, about uh, being a disruptor uh, for the carceral continuum. And so many important things to us as school psychologists and children uh, in our society today. So just want to tell a little bit about Dr. McClure. He's a nationally certified school psychologist. He helped redesign a high school in Southeast D.C. His work centers around influencing change and ensuring students from high poverty communities have access to quality education. He has extensive work and knowledge and expertise in mental health, social and emotional learning, and behavior. Dr. McClure has done considerable work advocating for healing-centered practices for all students, particularly for African-American boys. He's designed and implemented school-wide initiatives such as SEL, restorative practices, MTSS, and trauma-responsive practices. As a result of this work, led by Dr. McClure, his school won the 2019-2020 Whole Child Award. Dr. McClure has presented across the country as a panelist, speaker, and featured keynote speaker. He believes in maximizing everyone's limited, limitless potential. Welcome Dr. McClure, we're so excited to have you back.
3: It's always a pleasure to be with you all,
2: thanks for inviting me back,
3: uh, always good to be here and, and to talk all things school psychology with you all.
2: Awesome. Well, last time we had you on, we talked quite a bit about your lessons for SEL. We talked about being a disruptor, which was my favorite talk uh, hearing you speak at NASP a couple years ago. And um, you've got some new things coming from lessons for SEL and uh, particularly focusing on restorative practices. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, restorative practices uh, are sort of um, a catchphrase, right, in the field today. So, I'm wondering if you could start, perhaps, with just telling us a little bit about what that means to you and and what restorative practices look like.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's it's my honor to be back with you all today. Um, I've been I've been lucky uh, to do um, a lot of work inside of the the public school system, um, and now that I, I'm doing lessons for SEL. Um, really helping educators and school psychologists to understand, you know, the the core principles around social emotional learning, around restorative practices. And there might be a number of different uh, definitions around restorative practices, but what restorative practices means to me, um, it's a set of practices that are really designed around repairing any instances of harm. Um, it's a, a, a system-wide change that should happen uh, to really help students to acquire the skills that they need to repair those instances of harm, to build a community of trust, to strengthen relationships, um, to bring in uh, systems of accountability, um, and more than anything, I think the the bigger umbrella of uh, which you might lump under restorative justice is it's a it's a transformative approach, right and In the sense, a lot of uh, when we look at schools across the nation historically have adopted this punitive approach to school, right? Whether it be through compliance or harsh disciplinary policies, such as zero tolerance with restorative practices. It's a transformative way that says that we're no longer going to have this punitive lens. Instead, we are going to focus on restoration, right? repairing instances of harm that might have been done, holding uh, each person accountable so that we might build a stronger sense of community. And so through that restorative justice lens, you have a set of practices, uh, which I'm sure we'll dive deeper in. Um, But that's what I spent uh, a lot of my time working inside of D.C., um, implementing uh, these practices, which it took years, right? It's not just something that you could you could open up a box and and you know say, hey, we're a restorative justice school. No, it takes years um, for implementation, uh, for maintenance, and to really roll it out across um, a tier level of support. But I've been fortunate to really dive deep into that work, and so now it's set me up to where i'm helping uh, other educators psychologists across the nation to really strengthen um, and develop the understanding of restorative practices and restorative justice restorative circles um, and what it can do to improve outcomes for their students
2: i really like that you you mentioned that it's systemic right so um you know, one of the things that I think we have trouble with in education is that we expect to just crack a book and, uh, you know, and and roll out, you know, five steps to restorative practice, you know, or um, and expect that everything's going to fall into place. And then when it doesn't, you know, perhaps then we toss the book and say this doesn't work or, um, you know, and, and probably default back to our previous positions or previous behavior. Um, and and I think one of the things that we came out of, especially in the 1990s, at least um, in education systems that I was in, uh, was zero tolerance policies. And so we had this really harsh sense of punitive uh, discipline where there was just no wiggle room. Right? You did this, you got this kind of thing. Um, so I, I really like the fact that we you know we need to take this from a systems lens and. Um, and see what, um, you know, what we need to do to address that systemically.
3: Absolutely. And it reminds
2: me of a conversation
3: that I had with, uh, with my brother today. And we were, I grew up in, in PG County, uh, Prince George's County, which is in Maryland, a predominantly African-American district, uh, you know, really close to D.C. And one of the things I was talking to my twin about is how we grew up. Um, in a school where we might have been, you know, considered to be uh, a statistic um, based on where we're from um, growing up in PG County. But what was interesting, I reflected on my ninth grade year and then my 12th grade year. And when I was in ninth grade, believe it or not, I got suspended and I was suspended. I was just being a knucklehead, um, skipping class. I thought I had it all figured out and I went to uh, my spot and I got cocky and I got sloppy and then they implemented this hall sweep and I got caught in the hall sweep and the uh, one of the assistant principals at the time, he pulled me in and his office and I remember him saying, you know, you got caught in this hall sweep and it's a zero tolerance policy and I was like, that's pretty harsh. This is like my first time getting in trouble. Like, I'm not a bad kid. I just made a bad choice at the time and that I didn't know how to voice that or to express what it was. I just felt something was wrong. Guess I was wrong. Guess I should have been in class somewhere. But I'm a kid and I made a poor choice. Um and I, I was suspended for that. Fast forward to my 12th grade year in high school, um, different administrator. Um, I was doing some I was another back in the day. I wasn't a terrible kid. I was a kid, right? Just like all of us were. And I remember it was the 12th graders versus the 11th graders. And me and my twin, we were on the wrestling team. And we just thought it would be a good idea to wrestle the other kids. And I picked this boy up and I had him in in midair in the hallway slamming him. And the assistant principal, Miss Moore at the time, saw me and she was like, Byron. And I looked and he's in midair, (laughs) we're going to the ground. It was like something off the movie. And she was like, my office now. Like, all right, zero tolerance. I'm about to be suspended again. And she just looked at me like, no, I'm not. What would that do? You're in 12th grade. You should be graduating. And she pulled up my files. She looked through my grades. She looked to see if I was on track. And I wasn't on track to graduate. And she said, you have enough time to be playing, uh, but you don't have enough time um, because you're not on track to graduate. And I didn't have any community service hours at all. And so what she did, she was restorative in her approach. Instead of suspending me or removing me from school, um, she made me uh, do some things to where I could get my hours for, uh, towards graduation. And so she made me a manager of the step team. And I was able to get my hours, I was able to graduate. And then on graduation day, the more passed away. Um, and it was just a, a very tragic thing. Um, and I shared that story Because so many other students were in that situation to where they had a Miss Moore, right? They had a caring adult who cared for them, but was restorative in her approach. Then I go on to school and I study and learn these different things. And then I become an educator. And it's clicking for me, even in this moment today, as I'm sharing with my twin, of course, Miss Moore meant so much to all of us. But that's one of the reasons why I do this, is to be restorative in that approach. And being that knucklehead in ninth grade and getting suspended, it didn't teach me anything because of the policy, that zero tolerance. It didn't change my behavior, it didn't correct it. Like that didn't do anything. But then having someone who cared about me as a person and my future said, we're gonna get this right. That's the power of being restorative in nature. And that's what we're talking about with these practices. So just imagine with educators, with teachers, with school leaders who can adopt that mindset to where we're not gonna focus on those harsh disciplinary practices that I might add historically have been disproportionate against certain groups of students, right? Like myself. Black kids, Black and brown kids, those students with, uh, who might have IEPs, especially students with emotional disabilities, um, to where they are harshly disciplined. And what restorative practices, what it does, it sets the environment to where we can have a new approach that is an alternative to those harsh disciplinary practices. And it gives students a shot. It gives students a chance. And I know I'm talking a lot, but I care deeply about this. And in fact, I'll say when I first arrived to DC, I was, I was the, the SEL person and you know I was SEL everything. And when I got there, I couldn't implement SEL the way how I wanted to. And I had to take a thousand steps back and really look at the environment of what was happening. And our students, there was so much harm that have been done inside of that community, from students to students, from teachers to students, from uh, district-level leadership to leadership at the school level, from leadership to teachers. And we had to repair instances of harm. We had to teach the right language and vocabulary. And most importantly, we had to create a culture, a system that was restorative and not a uh, focused on this uh, retribution-type mindset. And we had to move away from that. Um, And we had to do that so that we could actually get to the SEL. Because what I found, right, we tried to implement um, an SEL curriculum at the high school level during that advisory period. Well, Eric, Rachel, Rebecca, what we found, students weren't going to that advisory period in the morning. And why weren't students showing up? for a myriad of reasons, but one reason in particular, students didn't feel safe. They didn't feel welcome. So we had one of the highest truancy rates in the entire district. And until we could meet the needs of our students, until we could repair those instances of harm, until we could really hone in on those things, then no SEL curriculum, no intervention, nothing was gonna work. So we had to adopt this restorative approach implement it at the school-wide systems level um, for us to be able to do those things later on, which is exactly what we did.
2: That's uh, amazing. So, just like um, a relationship, right, where we have to maintain, build and maintain trust, right? If somebody, um, you know, does something that bothers us or is inappropriate to us, you know, we have to then Figure out whether we can trust that individual, right? So your students, the, that level of trust um, was was really disrupted, um, and it, it sounds like it really takes the step, the first step from the adults to um, to correct that and, and repair that.
3: Oh, absolutely, and even even <laughs> more than that, what I found is before we could do anything with, with at the student level, um. We have so many barriers implemented, again. and some of the, the, the constructive criticism, um, I think, towards restorative practices is, one, there isn't a solid evidence base yet. Well, one, it's an emerging practice, right? It hasn't been around. Um, that It's been around, but not for, you know, centuries and decades. Like it's an emerging practice. Um, but then uh, another one of the, the barriers to implementation is staff buy-in, teacher buy-in. And especially in uh, a place like where I was, um, teachers as well as students were used to uh, retribution and they were used towards something happens, you're getting out of here. It's the zero tolerance mindset. Um, And we want payback, right? We want something to happen, to feel justified. And coming in, we had to completely flip that. And so a big part of the work during that implementation phase of year one was simply getting a teacher buy-in, was getting a staff buy-in, um, getting teachers and staff to understand that if we can implement these practices in a way that is systematic, then we might face hurdles and barriers, and it might be hard, and we might get pushback, but over time, we're going to repair so much harm that have been done Along the way, we're going to teach students and staff how to be accountable for our actions. We're going to build a strong community that is caring, that is firm, that is fair. And by doing that, we really were able to get staff buy it. But that's that's a big thing uh, with restorative practices. And, and when people ask me, you know, where where do we start? Where should we get started? I always talk about a needs assessment, one so that you can have data, right? We, we're a school psychologists, we, we care about our data. Um, but so that you can have a, a concrete plan, know what the needs of your unique school staff are, what you're building, what those needs are, but then understanding what your staff are saying, what they're communicating, and then working relentlessly to get buy in. Um, and then making sure that your, your leadership has buy-in as well, and that they're not going to abandon it once things get difficult. So getting that, that teacher buy-in, that's a big first step.
1: I wanted to ask about, you know, I think many schools these days have um, groups or, or teams that work on social-emotional learning um, and practices for kids Um, on self-awareness and self-management and relationships. And then they have kind of a separate um, group or or a separate um, entity that looks at work in the area of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I wonder if restorative practice in a way can marry those to um, goals because as I was listening to you, I, I was recognizing how without um, addressing kind of the repair, the things that have gone wrong in the, the history of, of these zero tolerance policies and the history of um, bias and, and judgments against groups of kids and, and groups of behaviors even has created a situation in schools in which SEL can't isn't always um, helpful and it sometimes actually can be hurtful. And I wonder if you think that restorative practices can help us address some of that when we blend it together with our SEL work.
3: Without a doubt. And I'll, I'll do you one, one better. So year one uh, was spent getting teacher buy-in, staff buy-in. Uh, we had a, a lot of bumps. Uh, we brought in uh, restorative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we had so many bumps. People people see me and they're like, oh, he has it all figured out. I want to be transparent. I don't have it figured out. I tried things and I ideate and I put it out there. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that year, that first year was rough. Uh, we brought in a restorative justice coordinator. We had uh, a restorative justice team, and it was rough that entire year. So uh, going into that summer, after that first year, we lost funding. We lost the restorative justice coordinator position, a lot of staff turnover, uh, leadership turnover, new principal. all It was a mess, um, but we stuck with it. And so one of the things that there was another community partner through um, an organization called Access Youth, and they had several different focus areas. One of the focus areas was restorative practices. And so myself and that restorative practice, that Access uh, Youth person, we worked uh, to create this new team that was called SRT. And it was SEL, Restorative Practices, Trauma Responsive, SRT. And what we did, we blended all because it was right. And what we learned from year one, it's all these different pockets. We were implementing restorative practices. We had SEL over here, but we wanted to get to it, but we couldn't get to it because we had to do these things. We were trying to have this trauma responsive lens because in areas such as D.C., um, especially where where I was, uh, people talk about trauma and I feel like it's becoming this buzzword and it's, It's almost glorified to a certain extent, but what we're seeing is there's nothing glamorous about it. It's it's devastating. And it was impeding our students and our staff to the point where it, it was a lot. And so we wanted to bring all these different areas and pockets and initiatives and buzzwords and merge it into one cohesive unit. And we took it a step further with this SRT that then replaced... Because at the district level, they re, they phased out RTF. This is true stuff. They phased out the entire RTF for the entire district. And this is true stuff. So there was no more RTF for the district. And so we had to basically operate at the school level. And so what we ended up doing was saying that we are going to use this SRT, SEO Restorative Trauma Responsive Team, to now look at our this tiered system of support through a lens of what harm has been done to our students academically, behaviorally, socially, emotionally, and um, attendance. And we still had meetings and we were discussing students across tiered levels of supports. but we looked through things through this restorative lens of what harm had been done, how can we repair the harm? And then we will funnel them to our mental health team, to the restorative team, we will put in these interventions and support. So we had to, we didn't have a choice, For this to work, going into year two, we had to be strategic about bringing all these different practices and merging them together so that they were cohesive, that it fit within this tiered level of support, and that most importantly, it was trickling down to the teachers, then from the teachers to the students, so that the work was actually making a difference. So the short answer is yes, we absolutely had to do that.
0: We've talked a couple times on different episodes about yeah tier one and um, core core practices and I think that you know what you're saying hits so much on that. And as school psychologists, many of us get shuffled into tier three, and I think that you know you're setting such a good example for for diving into kind of the systems level approach. That again, school psychologists sometimes you know aren't given a whole lot of opportunities to get in there, Um, and and it's easy to get kind of just Pushed into this, okay, I'm going to test this kid and put them in special education, or you know, this kind of narrowly focused role. And it's hard, I think, to get to get a seat at some of these other tables and these other teams that they might not have historically had a school psychologist um, involved in that. So I think that that's really awesome that you've been able to form the relationships and and get yourself in there. How, how do you recommend that that other psychs kind of go about doing that? That seems a little bit overwhelming. And what I'm hearing you talk about when you first went in there, um, you know, kind of having, having troubles. And I experienced that as well. You know, you get out of grad school and you think that these are, this is the way things are supposed to be. And when you see it not working like that, you want to go and change it. And you very quickly get (laughs) kind of smacked Mm -hmm. down and put in your place because like you said, these things take years and you can't just come in and and flip it on its head right away.
3: Yeah. And and that's a, a very important point because I'm doing all of this uh, at that time as a school psychologist. And I'm not naive enough to, to think that school psychologists across the country have that luxury to so where, in fact, I was brought there. I was invited in uh, to come in and focus on SEL um, with maybe doing some restorative practices. And then uh, we found out quick uh, that we couldn't do SEL They had to do restorative practices first, but the leadership, they brought me in to do just that. Um, And so they they had a belief in me. But it's also important for me to say this, Rachel, I had to show and deliver the value in this work, right? And without me doing that, without showing staff the benefit of the work and what's the value in it and using my skill set as a school psychologist, whether that's through consultation whether that's through collaboration, whether that's through the data, whether that's through understanding systems level change. Listen, make no mistake about it. I was brought in to that school to really focus in on systems level change. And going through graduate school, we learned that, right? We all have assessment courses. We all have, that's our bread and butter but we also have to keep in mind, we were trying to do a lot of different things. And I really leaned on my expertise around systems level change, consultation, data. All of those things really helped me to come into that school and look from the top down systemically, what was happening that was a barrier to our students learning. And as I was able to articulate and voice that to leadership, they said, well, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about. So go do something about it. And they gave me a little bit of leniency to do it. And with that little bit of leniency, I tried. And I didn't always get it right, but I tried. And through that, there was like, oh, he's he's serious about it. Like he's wild enough in his brain to really think that he's going to come in here and make a difference. And he's bold enough to work with students to where... Other psychologists who have been there might have just stayed inside of their office and might have just tested all day. You got to put yourself out there as school psychologists and show the value that you have. Because if you don't, people are just going to assume. Right. And they're going to assume based off of history, based off of what their previous interactions with other school psychologists might have shown them. And they might have shown them. I'm just going to test all day. So we have to step outside of our comfort zone, knowing that we have the knowledge, we have the skills, we have the training to do all of those things. Because then what happened after that, after they gave me a little bit of leniency, we started seeing growth, right? And students started to improve in their behaviors and their academics and their attendance. Staff started to improve, right? And they're in all of those different things with our staff. And then over time, uh, we weren't making enough growth in our school. We were on the cusp of being shut down systemically from all of those issues. And because of the work as a school psychologist that I was able to to participate in, they said, we're going to redesign this school and we trust you enough. Keep in mind everything that I mentioned of how I had to win staff over in a very tough place, in a very tough school, but because people could start to see there's something with these restorative practices and, and with this SEL and our students are getting it, and we're believing and we see that and we believe in it enough to where we're going to let this. I was an outsider and I don't know if there is any place like D.C., but or especially in Southeast, but you got to win people over and they don't trust just everybody. And so for them to say, we want you to be part of this team that's going to lead our redesign work. That's a big, big statement. But I, I give a lot of credit to my skills, my training, my knowledge and expertise as a school psychologist, understanding data, systems level change, consultation, to do all of those things to make a difference inside of the lives of our students and, and our staff. So I know I, I'm, I'm giving a lot. So I, I'll pause right there.
2: That was great. What great words. And um, and really, you know, you explain so much. There's a lot of layers to what you're saying. um, And it it paints a very clear picture. Um, I want to just give a quick um, mention. One of our viewers uh, gave a little comment and she said that uh, was referring to your assistant principal when you got in trouble as a, as a senior, uh, that you are proof that restorative practices work. And the assistant principal really left a long mark on you simply because she had her heart in the right place Mm. and had a goal for you. So that was, that was a good comment.
3: It's powerful. And uh, we, we've heard the saying, you know, it takes one caring adult, one caring adult can make all the difference and miss Moore was that for, for myself, for my brother, for my classmates. And you know, this we were devastated. Like she passed away the day of graduation, headed to graduation. Um wow. but knowing the difference that she made, you know, is is powerful. Um and it's you know, I'm I'm what, how many years removed from high school and I'm literally talking to my brother about the impact of making that connection in my head of maybe this is why I care so much about restorative practices. Um and why I I I despise that's a strong word but while we have to get rid of zero tolerance policies that are just so harsh cuz I think about um when I was in DC at the high school I'm working with other high school students and I see myself in those kids and what restorative practices does it sets the environment for them to make mistakes y'all and know that it's okay that you're not going to be condemned or criminalized for it We're gonna hold you accountable. We're going to nurture you. We're gonna give you the opportunity to learn so that when you leave out of these four walls, you can be successful. And that's SEL. And that's the connection to understanding those core competencies where you're understanding self and how your actions impact those around you and how you can build those relationship skills and make good choices. And make good decisions that will impact your life that's what Miss Moore taught me in that moment so powerful and I just try to to be that for for my students for the communities that I've worked in
1: It is so powerful it, it makes me think of just like even in a counseling room when you're working with a kid who's struggling in some way and maybe that's coming out in behavior you can't get to behavior change or or a goal or or anything beyond where you are, without without full empathy for where this kid is coming from and, and why, and with, without validating those feelings. So it's this. It's the same for when we're working with one hurting kid at a time. Why wouldn't it be you know the same for groups of kids? Because um, you know, kids. I also like Ross Green has said he's been on our podcast before kids will do well if they can and when that's they're right. not doing well there's a lot that we adults can do so it's just so powerful did you find as you were you were asked to come in and 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 work on this and you were showing them data did you find that certain allies really helped you make progress after that first difficult year were they teachers were they administrators were they parents
3: yeah that's it a- Excellent question, and I I had to find allies in the work, um, especially just one. We you have to understand the dynamics of where you are and, and where you're working. Every school environment is different. Every culture, every climate is different. It has its nuances, and I had to go into a place I I worked. You know, in, in Southern Maryland in a high poverty area, um, but going into D.C. was very different. And I had to learn. I had to listen. I had to observe. Um, and I had to to build allies. And in doing that, I remember um, I, I talked to the leadership and I, I said, hey, I think we should go to, to this restorative practices training. Um, and we went. And that was, I came in uh, in the summer. So I had a, a little bit of time uh, to meet some of the staff who were working over the summer. And one of the people who was working was one of the deans. And one of the deans have been there for literally like decades, like 30 years, almost older than I am um, at the time. And, you know, it's always this. Who's this young kid? Who's this guy? Let's kind of fill him out. And in one of the first trainers and sessions, I'm talkative. I've voiced my opinion. I say what's on my mind. And I was just sharing, you know, things that. I thought it was interested, um, and I was speaking out, and it was the, the these people from the district. I didn't know who they was, but I was sharing. Uh, they had made a comment about those kids, and I was kind of offended by it um, because it, it didn't sit right with the audience and the type of comment. And so. I said something about those kids and how any one of us could have been one of those kids and how we, we have to choose our words wisely. And the dean was just looking at me and afterwards we went on lunch break and he just pulled me to the side and he said he he called me Doc. He said, You, you know, Doc, I, I've been listening to you and you know you're you're gonna you're gonna do all right here. And he we had a long conversation, but he gave me permission to be myself and to speak. And he kind of told me that you have to win uh, the, this, the staff over. It's not always going to be easy um, because they've been through a lot, right? They've been, they see the students experiencing trauma and they've experienced vicarious trauma. They have leadership that leaves, that turns over year after year after year. So they have their their guards up. So you can't take it personal, but you have, again, the knowledge, the skill set, the expertise so don't be discouraged. But he gave me the permission and he's a big voice inside of that school. But by him giving me the permission, it kind of opened other people up to the work that that I was doing. And then by me doing the work, um, I would work with the challenging student. Um, that student would you know improve a little bit. Uh, I would bring a teacher into a restorative circle. Like he's here with the students. I would literally. I would As soon as I entered into the building, I'm walking the halls, I'm with the students, I'm breaking up fights, I'm putting out fires, I'm on the ground. And they were like, this guy, he's talking it, but he's serious about it. To the point to where they were like, all right, Doc is going to advocate for these kids no matter what. And he's going to bat for them. And we're sick of him. And we know restorative practices. We know SEL. We got it. Um, but I, I had to win them over it and it started slow. You start with one person, and that's with any initiative, with any program, with anything that you're doing, especially as school psychologists, right? We have to get out there. We have to have small proof of concept. We don't have to start big. We don't have to start with changing the school, but if we can start small with one teacher, with one dean, with one assistant principal, and do something, that actually makes a difference that people say, Oh yeah, then you'll get a little bit more Then you'll grow. And then that can grow into a tier two or tier three. And then you're at the systems level change. And then you're at the district and then you're taking whatever you're doing across the nation and changing lives all across the world. That was really dramatic, (laughs) but
2: inspiring. (laughs) (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) Really. Um, I have so many thoughts uh, right now, but um, just I think we're all at a place coming back to school this year uh, where we need this now more than ever. You know, I'm seeing um, so many anxious kids, anxious adults, um, people at their capacity um, as far as frustration tolerance. and, um, And so I think you know, likely the results of so many things, you know, that we've experienced and many people have experienced during the pandemic, um, you know, from, uh, racism to, you know, not just the fear of the the pandemic, but all of the things that, um, so many societal issues exposed or were exposed, um, uh, opportunity gaps and, and lack of medical care and just so many issues, um, and I think we're really feeling that coming back to school. I've spoken to so many educators from a number of districts, not only in my state, but um, in in uh, neighboring states, that are saying, you know, kids are just coming and there are fights, and uh, kids are anxious, and teachers are stressed. so. Um, really, just hearing this now is is just as a remind me that um, this is where we need to get back to, um, not jumping in worrying about testing and not jumping into the school year, worrying about um, academic levels. That all is important and we'll get back there, but just the basic relationships and basic, you know, community and and interrelationships within our our school communities. Yeah,
3: absolutely. I I think you're, you're spot on and I, I kind of, I think we all had an idea that it was going to be difficult transitioning back into uh, the school setting, Um, but I don't think any of us really knew it was going to be this challenging to where I'm hearing, you know, educators, staff are are really burnt out already, Um, and this is October. And going into it, that's why I wanted to provide resources to, to help educators um, uh, across the country as they transition back into the school setting uh, with, with some of the, the resources that, that I provide. But you're yeah, absolutely right. It's, it's rough. It's, it's tough.
0: I'm wondering if you could back it up a little bit for somebody who maybe doesn't know, uh, you know, my, my school does a little bit of restorative circles and whatnot. What, tell me what that is um, and and how that looks. What would you look to see if somebody if there was an uh, something happened and a school psych was called in? How 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 might that that look? Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, if what the restorative circle process looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's uh, under restorative practices. I look at it like uh, umbrella, right? And at the top of the umbrella. Can y'all see that? <laughs> you have restorative justice. And restorative justice is the overall philosophy that's moving from a punitive approach to a more restorative, transformative approach that's focused on healing, repairing instances of harm, building trust, establishing communities, right? And then underneath that umbrella, how do you get there? And you get there through a set of practices that are restorative. Hence, restorative practices. Underneath that umbrella definition of restorative practices, there are a number of practices that that people can use to help them restore instances of harm. And that can be things from restorative conversations. That can be anything from I love, and people don't talk about this enough, but identifying and tracking trends and discipline data, reviewing policies, practices, procedures that are creating harsh disciplinary practices in the first place. People don't talk about that. That was a big, big thing that I did year one as well. And then just the other two that I'll say quickly that I think are the most important are proactive practices, which can really be done at the tier one level, going into the tier two level, and then responsive practices. Um, which can be more of those responsive circles, community building circles after an incident happens as well. What I spent a great deal of time focusing on was, of course, helping understand the the system, how we can roll out restorative practices at a systemic level, looking at trends and discipline data um, in AP Gifted Honor classes, right? Because how are we creating the conditions where students might be successful? Um, How are we combating harsh disciplinary practices, things such as zero tolerance or uniform policies or hair policies, or in my school, cell phone policies, which was leading to ridiculous rates of suspensions and expulsions and students being turned away at the door. And we had to look at why are students being turned away? What's leading to these trends in discipline And we had to look at the policies. Um, And so looking at all of these as a set of practices that ultimately are leading towards restoration and healing to promote a positive school culture and climate. Now, that might be a lot. I really, in, in my talks, my presentations, always say you can start with the data collection, looking at trends and office discipline referrals. That's a great place to start. Or you can start with having restorative conversations, and I always i have it's like this four by six cards, and it asks a number of questions. How can you have restorative conversations um and it goes through preparing yourself right you got have to socially emotionally like make sure that you're ready to enter into these tough Conversation. So it's getting yourself right. And that involves self awareness, right? You have to be able to understand your thoughts, feelings, emotions, how you're entering into this conversation. But then it moves you through a number of other questions. So, what was the incident? What happened? Who might have been harmed? And then it moves you to uh, what is each person's perception of the harm that happened? Then, how might you restore the harm? What is it that you need in this moment, in this situation? And then how can we move forward collectively together? And so I believe that restorative conversations is one of the most powerful, it's one of the more simple practices that you can do. It's a great way to get started and in introducing this at, a, at a, a systems level. It's something that doesn't take that much work.
1: That's so awesome. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about restorative circles. So that's um, a, a collection of products, I believe, on Lessons for SEL. How can school psychologists use restorative circles to try to create these restorative practices in their schools?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And Eric alluded to this earlier. Um, coming back into the school year, we knew that it, it was going to be hard. It was going to be you know, challenging. It was going to be uncertainty. And so I wanted to take resources and tools that I found to be effective for students who I've worked with um, that was restorative in nature, but then I wanted to blend it with SEL. Now people might not know, so my resource is called Safe Circles, right? And it's kind of like a double entendre, is that the right word? Um, It's a play off the word safe, in the sense that safe, we want to create a safe, welcoming environment as students are returning back. We want to be able to have conversations and dialogue about whatever it might be going on uh, with that student, with the groups of students, with staff as well, in an environment that is safe, that is welcoming, that is inclusive to all students. But safe is also an approach that is designated by Castle, and with this approach is putting forth activities that are sequenced, that are active forms of learning, that is focused on building those explicit. SEL skills over time. Now, that's a safe approach. So, I wanted to blend this safe SEL approach with restorative circles to provide a way where staff can meet the needs of their students. And with the safe circles, it gives uh, its a total of 145 different restorative prompts, restorative questions, restorative quotes. Uh, it gives different energizers. It gives different Uh, restorative, uh, how to repair any instances of harm, but it gives a a good guide, a good blueprint for those who might be interested in getting started with restorative practices. And it's been the best seller too. It's been been going very well. And so if there's anyone listening to this, I I love to provide uh, the listeners with a discount. I think they could use uh, what's one of the codes? Enjoy. And I think you could take, what, $5 off, get 10% off. Just put enjoy and you'll get a discount. So there's that.
0: <laughs> awesome. We love we love discounts. and <laughs> That's so great. Um, I was thinking though, too, back to um, your comment about how this is kind of a, a newer thing. And so there's not maybe, you know, uh, explicit research on it, but I feel like if you look at behavioralism and and all this stuff we've known for so long, that punishment is is not going to be as effective as reinforcement. And so, you know, we've been using this broken system that we know hasn't been evidence based for so long and we know has done harm. Um, so to me, I'm excited to see this type of stuff come out and, and be researched and, and gain momentum because I really think it's it's so worthwhile and so so much more refreshing than than kind of this typical stuff that we've seen in the schools.
3: Yeah, and I, I get asked that question a great deal. And one of the things that I learned, especially from from my dissertation. Um, Right. Um, I studied. I investigated Castle Select programs uh, with minority youth from high poverty communities, and I wanted to know which SEL programs are the most effective for youth of color, especially students from uh, who might be from high poverty areas. And perhaps the most important thing that I found is those curriculums and programs that are designated Castle Select and are evidence based. There's. Big money and institutions behind it, one. And then, two, you also have to think that they're normed or, or the evidence base is on certain groups of students that might not reflect your demographic of students. And so, I take me an evidence base with a grain of salt, right? And I look at what we were able to do at Anacostia. And I know for a fact we were able to increase our in-seat attendance. Why? I started off this conversation saying that we weren't able to do a SEL curriculum because our students weren't coming to school in part because they didn't feel safe. By implementing restorative practices, we created an environment where students felt safe. We increased our students' sense of belonging. And what happened? Our in-seat attendance went up, right? And so that, I mean, that's data, right? (laughs) But it's not, This evidence based thing that's, you know, that's out there. It's emerging. But I don't want people to get so lost on the fact that it's not evidence based. It's not Castle Select, so we can't use it. No, we have to ask, what's in the best interest of our students? A better question might be, have you talked to your students? Have you asked them, what is it that you need? It might not be a SEL curriculum that's on that castle select list. It might not be lessons for SEL. It might not be something that I'm offered and I'm okay with that. I would much rather you as educators, as leaders, talk with your students, talk with your staff, talk with your parents in your community, and then find something that is most effective for you and that will move the needle. Because ultimately what we're talking about is creating the right conditions for students to be successful. And if that means you talking with your students and working from this, and this gets listen, y'all gonna have to have me back again to where we could talk about design thinking. And that's what we did. We redesigned our high school, we used that approach to where we could build and co-create and co-design with and for instead of aiming solutions at that will never work. And I think there's value in that as well.
0: We have commenters talking about your passion and um, it it is, it's contagious. You're just like, this is what I need to go into next week too, is a little bit of of your passion and inspiration. So thank you for all this. This is amazing. Eric, I know you had something you wanted to chime in. I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: No, that's okay. Absolutely. That was a great, great um, point. Um, Just at your comment on design thinking. So yes, let's do that, Byron. Let's have you back to talk about that. you blew me away with that at NASP. And I I remember um, just like bugging you a little bit about, whoa, this is amazing. Um, So, and and it went hand in hand with being a disruptor and redesigning, right? I think disrupting and redesigning. Um, So I loved hearing you talk about that. So um, let's do that. Let's have you come back and and spend more time. Let's do that
3: seriously. Because honestly, I think that's the future of SEO, the student-centered design thinking approach.
2: Fantastic. And we're seeing some great comments come in.
3: That's pretty cool. I don't know if they're saying that, but how it's like popping up on the screen, y'all. Look, school site fi is magic. next level. <laughs> this is next level. <laughs>
0: But I know we're running short on time. So, yeah, any any last questions or comments from the audience for sure. Um, and I know that Eric's going to talk about our, our sponsor. And I want to remind people, too, that, um, let's see, November 7th um, is our next podcast. Um, Evelyn Bilius um, is coming back. Sorry, Rebecca. I know that's uh, Did I say her name wrong? No, okay. <laughs> um, and talking about um connectedness in schools, so that will be um a good one as well. But um, uh, yeah. So good comments, everybody's. Um, I think drinking it all in, and and very very exciting stuff that you're talking about.
3: Awesome. Oh. Well, as always, thank you all so much for inviting me on. I I stand by restorative practices. Um, I've worked in, I think, one of the more challenging schools. I know it's challenging schools all across the the country, but if it could work where where I was, I know that it can work in in most other places. Um, And I think it's something that uh, not just students need, but our staff benefit from it as well. Our entire school communities can benefit from restorative practices. Most importantly, school psychologists, we have these skills and we have to tap into them. So I'm imploring, I'm pleading, I'm begging the school psychologists. let's step up and out of that test to place mentality. Let's change the world, y'all, let's do it.
2: Thank you, Dr. McClure. We are right there with you. This is awesome. Um, and thanks to our, our listening community who chimed in with live comments. We really appreciate all of you. And um, our school psych uh, hive <laughs> hive mind, uh, where we're all in this together, right? We are a community of, of uh, folks who are here to help students and here to work with families and support teachers. And um, we're here to, to learn it and get it right. And so um, we really appreciate having folks like Dr. McClure on to um Help share his wisdom, expertise, and knowledge with us. So, thank you again, Dr. McClure, and we're excited. Uh, we'll set something up to have you back. And before I read a little thing on our sponsors, anything else you want to um, say? We've got enjoy as a discount code for um, lessons for SEL. And um, and uh, do you have a copy of any of your books with you? I see something in the background. You hold something up. Uh, Oh, yeah. Let's
3: see. This is uh, one of our books, Discovering the Ultimate You. It's a children's activity book. Love it. Bunch of cool interventions and uh, three good things and coloring pages. I don't know if y'all can see that. The light's pretty bright, but it's pretty cool there. Safe Circles. Of course, we have free resources. Our YouTube video lessons are always free. Um, Follow us on social media across all platforms at lessons for SEL. Um, I'm on there on Twitter, uh, at School Psych Life, all things school psychology related. Always
2: a pleasure, you all. Thank you. And as we close, just a quick uh, mention of our sponsor, uh, Med Travelers. Uh, Med Travelers um, is a leader in school psychology staffing. The genuine care benefits and guidance that they demonstrate with school psychologists is the mark of a true partner in career success. To learn more about Med Travelers and discover ways that they can help you succeed in your school psychology career, visit medtravelers.com forward slash school psyched. Thank you, everyone. Have a great night. Night, everyone.